Our first reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 1, from verse 1 to 3. The letter to the Hebrews chapter 1, I'll read from verse 1 to verse 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. Um, we will pray together now, and then we're going to get into our passage. We're going to be looking actually at Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have a booklet, I think that the passage is printed um, in the booklet, Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll be looking at the first three verses together in this first talk. Um, I've entitled the series uh, that we're going to be looking at today, Pressing on when life presses in. And uh, that really is what Hebrews chapter 12 is all about. It's a great chapter in the Bible that talks to us about what it's going to look like for us to endure as Christian people. When life presses in, when life is hard, and when we find it tough to live for the Lord Jesus, what are the things that will help us to keep going? And that's what Hebrews chapter 12 is all about. Pressing on when life presses in. So let's pray, and then we'll get into talk one. Our Father, we want to thank you this morning for the opportunity we have to spend time together as women in your word, and we thank you most especially for this wonderful chapter of the Bible, for Hebrews 12, that it is indeed your living word to us. We pray that you would help us to understand it together and to be able to apply it to our lives so that we will be faithful disciples for the Lord Jesus. And we pray for these things in your name. Amen. Right, ladies, please do keep um, Hebrews 12 open in front of you. Now, as you may well know, last year the Western Cape experienced a dire water crisis. Our water restrictions were severe, and I have to say that things were pretty rough there for a while. We no longer had the luxury of just opening a tap when we needed water to drink, or to fill the kettle, or to wash our hands with. Every week, our family would take our 25-litre water cans to a freshwater spring near our house. And with, you know, the rest of the southern suburbs, we would queue up to get our week's supply of drinking water. We were down to showering just three times per week, and we couldn't flush our toilets. Now, when I showered, I would turn on the taps, and there'd be a bucket in the shower, and we'd catch the running water as it heated up. And then we'd actually use that water for our toilets. And uh, once the water was warm, I'd hop into the shower and very quickly sort of wet my body and wet my hair. And then, my worst nightmare of all, turn the taps off again. And then soap up, put shampoo in the hair. And when I was ready, turn the taps on, quickly rinse off, rinse the hair. And this whole operation had to happen within two minutes. And trust me, ladies, this process of turning off the taps when you're wet in the middle of the Cape Town winter was really not a pleasant experience. But I have to say that it was a huge wake-up call to me in terms of thinking through how I use water. 
And I'm ashamed to say that up until that point, I'd actually never really considered this before. Water was something that I took for granted. And I didn't appreciate it until I had to live without it. And life is a little bit like that, isn't it? Things like family and friends, hot baths, 10-minute showers, those are things we often don't appreciate when we have them. But when they're gone, well, that's when we truly come to understand how wonderful those things really were. Well, Hebrews is a letter that was written to Christians who were in danger of giving up on Jesus because they were beginning to forget how wonderful Jesus really is. It seems that the original readers of this letter were facing persecution for their faith, so they found themselves in the midst of hardship. Turn back with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews, and we're just going to look very quickly at verses 32 to 35 of chapter 10. This is what the writer says to them. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And so we see a group of Christians enduring great hardship here for the sake of Christ. But you see, as they faced this hardship, they were being tempted to give up on Jesus. Trials and suffering will often do that. They sneak into our lives, they come along, and we're tempted to go, where is God? Why is it so hard? What's happening here? We can be tempted to give up. And so though these Christians were once bold and firm in their faith, it seems that they had now regressed to a state of spiritual apathy. And so you may remember those words from Hebrews chapter 5, where the writer says to them in verse 12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you now need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. And so into this situation of shrinking commitment to Christ, Hebrews stresses the grandeur and the supremacy of Jesus And so throughout the letter, if you were to go home today and read Hebrews from chapter 1 through to chapter 10, you will see that the writer reminds these Christians that Jesus is better than anything or anyone who has come before. Jesus is God's biggest and best gift to us. But ladies, it isn't always easy for us to live as if that is true, is it? Whether you lived back in 60 AD or 2019, the biggest danger if you are a Christian is the temptation to give up, especially when life is difficult. When life presses in, it can be easy to forget about Jesus, to be caught up in the trials and the hardships of this life, to even blame God 
for the things that we're experiencing. And like these Hebrew Christians, we can be tempted to throw in the towel. But as you read the letter to the Hebrews, you will see that the writer does not want us to lose sight of Jesus. We have to keep him squarely in our vision. He doesn't want us to let Jesus slip from our grasp. Um, When he was the admiral of the British Navy, Winston Churchill said that the first duty of a battleship is to stay afloat. And in the same way, this book of Hebrews reminds us that the first duty of every Christian is to not give up believing what Jesus has done for us. The gospel message must never grow old because the gospel is the one thing that will keep us afloat. To lose sight of Jesus, to lose sight of what he has done for us at the cross, will mean that we sink like a ship on the open ocean. And Hebrews 12 tells us how to avoid the drift toward unbelief. And in the section we're going to be looking at together now, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, we see three things that we are to do if we're going to persevere and not give up. And so I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 for us, and I want you to see if you can spot the three things that we are called to do here as Christian people. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Three things. First of all, we are to look back. Second of all, the writer says we are to look up. And thirdly, we are to look forward. Right, so that's your exercise for today. We're going to look back, we're going to look up, and we're going to look forward. So point number one, look back. In verse one, we are told to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And ladies, the first thing I want you to see here is that the Christian life is described as a race that needs to be run. And the kind of race in view here, it's not one of those, you know, short 100-meter sprints. Rather, what the writer has in mind here is a marathon. And running a marathon is hard. If you're married to a runner, my brother is a, a marathon runner and my mom. And so I know that marathon running involves long hours of training. It's hard work. It involves discipline. And you run for hours. And in the process, you cramp up. You get blisters. There are moments of feeling like you just won't make it. And if you want to finish that race and get the prize at the end, well, you have no choice but to press on. And in the same way, the writer is saying here, look, there is nothing easy 
about living the Christian life. And actually, anyone who tells you that it is easy is simply lying. This life that we've been saved to live is hard. And that's why it requires perseverance. Have you ever thought of that? Something that isn't hard doesn't require perseverance, does it? But this race, it does. And we are to persevere to the very end. We must not give up. And one of the ways that we will be able to run with endurance is by looking back, verse 1, to the great cloud of witnesses. So it tells us in verse 1, we've been surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now we meet the great cloud of witnesses back in chapter 11. We don't have time to read chapter 11 today, but if you go home and read chapter 11, you will see that it is a list of people which includes examples from the very beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament period. And if you flip back with me very quickly to chapter 10, verse 39, as he's speaking to these suffering Christians and he's urging them, don't give up, don't stop running the race, he says to them in verse 9, if we are Christians, then as we endure in this world, as we go through our suffering, we need to remember that we don't belong to those who shrink back. We're not, that, we're not of those who give up. Because those who give up are destroyed. He says, we are of those who have faith and are saved. And then if you look at verse 1 of chapter 11, what does he do? He then goes on to explain to them what faith is. So what is faith? It is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then he tells us this is what the ancients were commended for. And in the rest of chapter 11, he gives example after example of men and women who put this kind of enduring faith into action. And really at the heart of chapter 11, the focus is not so much on the men and women of faith themselves. The focus of chapter 11 is on God who is always faithful. That's the key in chapter 11. You see, the men and women in chapter 11 knew that God is a God who never lies. God had made certain promises to them. God had promised them a kingdom of their own, a new Jerusalem, a heavenly home. And they trusted that God would do what he said. And that meant that even when life was really hard for them, and if you read chapter 11, these guys suffered on another level, but they didn't give up trusting God. They kept going. But what undergirded that? It wasn't that they were magnificent people with extraordinary faith. It's that they knew that God can be trusted. And so what mattered for them was not their circumstances. What mattered for them was God's eternal promise and the fact that God is a promise keeper. You see, that's what the life of faith looks like. It is to believe God to trust that he knows what he's doing, to trust that he will not lie to us, that he will keep his promises. And it is to be so affected by this truth that nothing can pull us away from him. That's the point of chapter 11. And so the writer says in verse 1 of chapter 12, since we are surrounded by these cloud of witnesses, how do they witness to us? Well, in a court of law, witnesses testify to something. And so as you look back at chapter 11 and you read the stories of these faithful ancients, they testify to us that, hey, God is a promise keeper. 
God doesn't lie. And in the face of that, it doesn't matter what you go through in this life. He can be trusted. So keep going. So they testify to us of the character of God, and they testify in that they model to us what enduring faith looks like. And ladies, what's interesting is that these ancients in chapter 11, they didn't live to see the fulfillment of God's promises to them of a heavenly home and a new Jerusalem. They simply had to trust God's promise. But look at the end of chapter 11. Look at verse 39 to 40 of Hebrews 11. These ancients were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You see, they trusted God, and therefore they endured through all the hardships that they came across in life, but they didn't live to see the fulfillment of the promise. But we have seen it fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. You see, this is saying that the promise that the ancients trusted in is actually the very promise that has been fulfilled in the gospel. It's the gospel message. It's the message in which we trust. And so as we look back at God's promises to them, this side of the cross, we see that God has kept every promise he has made. He has kept every promise in Jesus. How do we experience a new Jerusalem, a heavenly home? Well, we look forward to the same thing they look forward to, don't we? We know that as Peter says, we're aliens and strangers. We're just passing through. We're onward and upward to something better. How do we know it's coming? We know it's coming because Jesus got there first. He secured it for us so we can be sure that it's waiting for us. And so in chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is not like, you know, oh, well, I hope Scott will get me a beautiful ring for Christmas. It's the certainty. We hope in the sense that we have seen in the message of the gospel that God has done what he said he would do. And if he has done the greater thing, says Paul in Romans, how much more will he not see us through to the end? And so as we look back at chapter 11, we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, and they say, look at us. We trusted God, and he didn't lie. He came through on the promise. How can you know? Well, because you have Jesus. The promise has been fulfilled. Everything they waited for, we have in the message of the gospel. It's like, you know, those giant puzzles that one can do, those kiddies puzzles. And all of the Old Testament, they're little puzzle pieces. They all fit together. But the puzzle is incomplete without the final piece. The final piece of the puzzle makes the puzzle. I mean, how frustrating when you do a puzzle and you get to the last piece and it's missing. It's not in the box. And you've done all this hard work and the puzzle is incomplete. Well, Jesus, you see, is the final piece of the puzzle. And the writer is saying, you have the full picture. The ancients, they trusted God that he would do what he said. You can look back and see that God has done exactly what he said he would do. And so how much more, if they pressed on without the complete puzzle, how much more, ladies, can we press on with the completed picture? And he's encouraging us, look back, look at them. And it's not that they're sitting in the stadium. You know, this is how people often teach the section of Hebrews. You've got all these wonderful people in the stadium and they're cheering and you're running and they're clapping for you and they're saying, come on, finish, come on. 
that's actually not what's happening here. Right, we are running the race, and they're saying, look back at us and take strength. Look and see what God has done and be encouraged. And so they're there for us to look at them, not for them to look at us. As we look at them, we see that God is faithful and that God can be trusted. And we get a picture in the light of that, of what faithful endurance looks like. We keep going because God is faithful. But I want you to notice there in verse 1 that the writer not only calls us to faithful endurance, he also spells out for us what that's going to look like. And the first thing we see is that faithful endurance involves throwing off everything that hinders. Can you see that in verse 1? Now, hindrances here, ladies, are not are things that are not in themselves wrong, but they slow us down from running the Christian race effectively. So if you're trying to run a race, but you're wearing an overcoat and big old army boots, you're not going to be very successful. And then if you strap a big backpack to your back, you'll be hindered even more. And the more you add, the more hindered you will become. Until eventually you will collapse, exhausted, before you've even finished the race. So there's nothing wrong with a coat or army boots or a backpack. In themselves, they're good things. But they are not good for running a race. In that context, those good things will hamper our progress. And there are many things that will come into our lives that we could describe as a snare or a hindrance to running the Christian race. What are hindrances in your life at the moment? What are the things that, as you think about your life this morning, are slowing you down? And ladies, what may hinder me may not be a hindrance for you. But the writer here says that each of us must put off whatever hinders us. Our Christian lives can be hindered by many and varied things. But the writer is saying, be on God against every hindrance. And so the focus here isn't so much on exactly what the hindrances will be. It's on the fact that every hindrance needs to be avoided. Do you see that? And remember that hindrances can be subtle. So let's think about it a little bit. Things like academic excellence or working hard at your job, having enough rest time. Those are good things. They're not bad in themselves, but they can hinder us from running the Christian race. So perhaps your pursuit of academic excellence means you spend all your time in your academic books, and so you neglect reading the Bible. Or your diligence at the office means you work so late that you've stopped being involved in Bible study not enjoying fellowship or accountability with God's people. Or your leisure time means that you are hardly ever at church. And so you're giving up meeting with other Christians and growing in God's word. These things become hindrances because they stand in the way of us being productive as Christian people. They sidetrack us from pressing on. 
And the writer is saying, whatever it is that is making you unproductive in the Christian life, throw it off. Get rid of it. That's the first step to running with perseverance. And the picture here, funnily enough, is of someone getting undressed. Because back in this day, runners would strip down to their underwear before running a race. Because they removed the layers of clothing that held them back. And in much the same way, we are to take off everything and anything that hinders us. And we're to run with perseverance. But secondly, I want you to notice that it also involves getting rid of the sin that so easily entangles. Back in chapter 3 of Hebrews, in verse 12, the writer issues a warning. And he says in chapter 3, verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. The sin that Hebrews warns against is the sin of unbelief. And it's actually the same sin that is in view here. You see, ladies, at the heart of sin is unbelief. So God says, do this. And I say, "Mm, no, I think I know better than you, God. So actually, I'd rather not do that. I'll do this. And we go on to sin against God. At the heart of it is not believing that God knows best for us. The heart of sin is unbelief. And the writer says, throw away that attitude. Get rid of it very quickly. Because the reality is that the more we do that, the more we will harden our hearts to God's word. The writer is urging us here to get rid of that attitude. Because if we don't, we will become entangled by it. Can you picture in your mind someone entangled in a bunch of branches? It's really hard to get out. He says, if you want to avoid that, then stop trusting yourself. Your heart is deceitful above all else, says the Proverbs. Trust God. Trust like the ancients of chapter 11, that he knows better for you than you do. If we don't get rid of that way of thinking, then the more we allow that disobedience and hardness of heart to become our pattern in life, the closer we will find ourselves walking away in unbelief, drifting from God. I'm sure we all know people who were there, who chose not to listen, and are now nowhere in the Christian life. They've drifted. They've fallen away. People often ask me at church, you know, how do I know that I'm really a Christian? Well, the writer to the Hebrew says, you will endure. You'll keep going. That's how you know. There can't be any of this, oh, I made a commitment when I was two, but, you know, God understands. I just, I I don't really live for him anymore. But, But I made a commitment when I was two. It simply doesn't work. The writer is saying here that every day we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus. He has saved us, but every day we have to endure in that. We have to keep going. We have to look back at that cloud of witnesses who model to us what endurance looks like, who testify to us that God is faithful and we've got to keep trusting him. We've got to throw off all that hinders us. We've got to see it for what it is. Those things threaten to take us away, to pull us off course. And we've got to get rid of that sin that says, well, I know better. That sin of unbelief, of not trusting God, so that we do not get entangled by it. 
But ladies, in this passage, there is also something more important than looking back. We are called here to look up. Look at verses 2 and 3. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So while we are to remember the example set for us by the cloud of witnesses, we are not to set our eyes on them. Rather, we are to set our eyes firmly on Jesus. Athletes competing in a race must keep their eyes fixed on the goal towards which they are running. They cannot afford to get distracted. Distractions will take them off course. And in much the same way, the writer is calling us to turn away from all distractions and to do what? We are to put our eyes, our full attention, on the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting there, that phrase in verse 2, fix your eyes on. It literally means to look to Jesus in the sense of relying completely on him. Why must we rely on him? What does the writer say? Because he, verse 2, is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. You see, Jesus is the pioneer of faith in the sense that he himself ran the race perfectly from start to finish. He trusted the Father to the very end. So like the ancients of chapter 11, he knew that God is faithful, that God doesn't lie. And so verse 2 of chapter 12 tells us that he kept his eye on the joy that was set before him. He stayed focused on the eternal promise of God and on the joy of being in the Father's presence forever. And this meant that though Jesus suffered extreme hardship, opposition, and even death, he faithfully endured. You see, he's the ultimate example of what the ancients were modeling in chapter 11. He went through so much, but he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The Father was faithful, and Jesus bears testimony to that. And ladies, the writer is saying to us, listen guys, remember Jesus, remember this truth. Remember all that he endured, because by focusing on him, by remembering him, by looking up to Jesus, you will not grow weary or give up. You see, the writer knows that by focusing on the Lord Jesus, we will be inspired to run with endurance and not collapse before reaching our goal. Jesus is our leader in the race of faith, the one who has blazed the trail ahead of us. So everything that happened to him will happen to us. And Paul says in Colossians that we are now seated with him in the heavenly realms. It's that now but not yet. Jesus secured our eternal future. And in a sense, when we're in Christ, we're there already. So we've kind of taken hold of the prize. Now we need to keep going so we can take hold of it. Do you get it? He says, don't forget the gospel. As you live life in this world with all its trouble and all its hardship and actually all its good stuff, because opportunities in life can be a trial. You know, we often think of hardships as just the cancer or the divorce or, you know, struggling with a a child who's gone off the rails. But having lots of money and being comfortable in this world is a trial because it also tempts us away from Jesus. 
And it is hard in those good things of life to actually stand firm, to not give up on Jesus, to not think, oh, well, I don't really need him. I've got everything I need. So whatever the hardship, trial or opportunity, we are called to not lose sight of Jesus. We are to keep our eyes fixed on him. You see, Jesus has made us perfect before the Father. By his body on the cross, Hebrews teaches that he has opened the way for us to enter into the very presence of God. And as we focus on him, he will get us through to our final inheritance. That's why he's the perfecter of faith here. It doesn't all depend on us. The writer is saying, look to Jesus. He is the one who will bring you into the presence of the Father. He has already done that, and he will yet do that. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, the one who brings things to their successful conclusion. That's what perfecter means here. So he's saying, stick with Jesus. Don't give up. Jesus will bring you to the goal for which you are running. Stick with him. The more you look to Jesus, and the more clearly you see who he is, And what he has done for you, the more overwhelmed you will be by the love of God for you. And the more overwhelmed by God's love you are, the more you will be a person who trusts God. You see, Jesus not only provides us an encouragement by his example, but in fact, he brings us to our destination. He is the one who brings us into the very presence of God. And so we're to stick with him, to not grow weary, to not lose heart. We're to trust him in all things because he will see us through to the end. And that's why, thirdly, we are to look forward. Verse 2 of chapter 12 is magnificent. It's saying that Jesus knew what waited for him in the future, that he would be reunited with the Father and exalted to the place of ultimate authority. And he knew that by his death, he would save us. And that because of the cross, we would share in his glory. And so what lay ahead in the future brought him joy. And for that joy, he pressed on, enduring the shame and the pain of the cross. And ladies, the writer is calling us here, to imitate Jesus. As we run with Jesus, we have before us a vision of eternity. There is a prize coming, and we will get it because of Jesus. And as I said, he's already in one sense given it to us. We've been redeemed, seated with him in the heavenly realms, and we are to press on until we can physically take hold of that. It's that now but not yet paradox of the gospel. Jesus sits enthroned at God's right hand, and he has promised that we will sit there too. And we've got to trust him. That's what faith is. That's Hebrews 11 verse 1. We're sure of what we do not yet see. We know it's there. And so we keep running. We run for the prize. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, the one who will get us there, because he already has Isn't that wonderful? I think it's the most encouraging thing. We won't get ourselves there. Jesus will. And we need to 
keep our eyes fixed on him. He walks with us, ahead of us, beside us, behind us. And his spirit in us guarantees our inheritance. The Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians, is our deposit, the promise that God will come through on his word. Well, as we wrap up, we're exhorted in this passage to view the Christian life as a race to be run with perseverance and not to underestimate the challenge. We are urged to lay aside everything that will hinder us, the sin that can so easily entangle, that sin of unbelief and disobedience, to get rid of those things. And instead, we are to fix our gaze on Jesus and on what he has done for us. So let me ask you, are you looking beyond the year and now to the new heaven and the new earth that God says is coming? Are your actions and your decisions, your conversations, your spending patterns, pastimes and priorities, are they reflecting a genuine life of faith? Or are there sins that are tripping you up and entangling you? You have to be honest with yourself about these things. Perhaps you need to go away from here today and make a list of things that you need to change so that you can be more productive in running the race of faith. And remember, ladies, perseverance here is not an optional extra, all right? The warning in Hebrews is that if you don't listen to this, you will not make it to the end. And so it's, I don't think it's a case of you will lose your salvation. I think it's a case of you've got to continue working out your salvation. And if you don't do that, if you give up, well, then you weren't there to begin with. The writer is saying, make sure you are there. How? By pressing on. By dealing with sin as you should in your life, not feeding it. By seeing it for what it is and going, I will trust God, not do as I please. Throw off that sin. Don't let it hold you from finishing the race. And this is very serious. The writer has actually been spending 11 chapters on this very warning. It's not a game. Saying the Christian life is not a game. You win, you win big. Eternity with Jesus. You lose. You don't finish. And you lose big. Eternity separated from him. This is a life and death kind of thing happening here. Derek Redman represented Great Britain in the 1992 Barcelona Olympic Games. He was a 400-meter specialist, and after easily winning the qualifying race, he was expected to go on and to take gold in the final. But with 250 meters to go, he tore his hamstring, and he, he hobbled to a halt and fell to the ground in pain. Uh, stretcher bearers made their way over to him, but as they got to him, Derek Redmond decided that he wanted to finish the race. And so he began limping down the track alone. And after a few moments, his father managed to get onto the track and, um, and made his way over to his son. And his dad said to him, my boy, just stop. Let's just stop and make our way to the medic's tent. But Derek refused. He wouldn't stop. And together, 
he and his dad limped across the finish line. And when he was asked by the media why he insisted on crossing the finish line, this is what he said. He said, my country didn't send me here to start the race. My country sent me here to finish it. That's what the writer is calling us to here, ladies. This is the kind of perseverance God wants of us as we run the race of faith. He wants us to finish, to not grow weary, to not lose heart. And in his graciousness, he says, here's how you can finish. Here is Jesus. He's done it all for you. He has secured your inheritance. It is finished. So keep your eyes on him. Keep going. In all of life's opportunities and all of life's hardships, keep Jesus the center of your vision. And as you look to his example, as you look at what he's done in the past, as you see the Old Testament promises fulfilled in him, and as you see him now seated at God's right hand, you can know that's your future too. That's where you're headed. This race, you're running to a glorious finish. So keep going. Keep going. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to run the race of faith with perseverance, that we would keep our eyes on him, that we would get rid of the things that hold us back, the sin of unbelief, the questioning when, when you say you know best and we say, well, we do. Help us to stop that, Lord. Help us to take sin seriously and to run with perseverance, to have Jesus at the center of our vision every day, all the time. And we pray that you would equip us by your spirit to finish the race. And we pray for this in your name. Amen.